Welcome to Fitness for Consumption, part of the Think Fit, Be Fit podcast network. I'm Dr. Paul Juris, kinesiologist, research scientist, performance coach, author, and innovator. I'm here with my co-host, motor learning and clinical specialist, Gregory Gordon. Together, we have over 50 years of practical and scientific experience in things relating to fitness, performance, and health. Join us as we share our stories and experiences and take a deep dive into essential fitness concepts and some highly complex issues too. Don't worry, we promise to keep it practical. And you know what else we promise? We're not here to tell you what to think or what to do. There's enough of that going around. We're here to offer you a different perspective on fitness based on something called human movement science. Spend some time with us and you'll think more critically about what people are telling you. You'll sort through it all and understand it more completely and you'll become self-empowered to make better decisions for you or for those with whom you're working. And for more great fitness content, please join Jennifer Schwartz on the Think Fit, Be Fit podcast show, where she offers her experience and knowledge of exercise physiology and athletic training in unique conversations about building resilience and inspiring high-quality exercise. So if you're ready, let's get into some fitness for consumption. And today we have a special recap episode. This is for season two of Fitness for Consumption. With me are the host and co-host of Fitness for Consumption, Gigi and PJ. Hi, guys. Hello, hello. Hello, Jen. How are you? I'm great. Thanks for asking. For those just tuning in, please introduce yourself and the show in general. PJ, you want to go first? Sure. Uh, Paul Juris here. Um, I like to refer to myself as the chief contrarian. (laughs) Um, So I am always looking to sort of take on conventional wisdom with all topics related to fitness and health and performance. Um, Definitely offering a human movement science perspective to all of these things. And I love to get into it and, you know, have these wonderful conversations with my friends and colleagues. Cool. Thanks for being here. Yeah. I, um, I, I totally loved this uh, season. So can't wait to get into that. Uh, Gigi. Yeah. So Gigi stands for Gregory Gordon and I am a neuromuscular clinician. I have a clinic in New York city exercise intelligence where I do some neuromuscular treatment and I do some personal training and Jen you and I just spent the weekend finishing up some continuing education content that we developed for another company and PJ here Dr. Juris is being a little bit modest he is actually my mentor and my inspiration for going to grad school and studying motor learning and control Uh, which I have a background in now after going to grad school. And that's largely the focus of our podcast is to look at things. We like to say that we look at anything from the pop culture side of fitness or the things that people are interested in on social media, you know, and if you listen to our podcast or haven't yet, you know, at times we get down and deep into very granular mechanisms of neural control. Um, But we look at everything, as PJ said, through this human movement science lens. Um, 
and we try to, when we can, you know, dispel myths and things like that. So we, we look at all this stuff and try to have fun while we're doing it. Good. Are you guys having fun yet? Yeah, it's, <laughs> it's always fun. You know, actually, when we do get into these topics, you know, some of the conversations get really fascinating. And as Gigi said, they get deep. Uh, but in for respect to our audience, you know, we, we don't want to get so deep that people start shaking their head and saying, what the heck are you guys talking about? So we try to keep it on a level that's practical and understandable and people can relate to while still providing them with enough scientific background and, and information to make it really valuable for them. So that's really where the fun is. Mm-hmm. Yeah. One of our listeners uh, used the term uh, that you guys were a little bit of historians when it comes to fitness and exercise science. And I'd say that would line up with some of the stuff that came out this season. Yeah, I certainly think so. You know, like uh, from, you know, certainly from the scientific side, I just have tremendous appreciation and, you know, uh, gratitude for the work that's been done prior to, you know, my getting a chance to see it and think about it. And even on the pop culture side, you know, I just, I like the history of exercise. It's a hobby to me and, you know, just the machines and thought processes. And, you know, I'm, I probably mentioned Sylvester Stallone at some point, every episode. So, you know, like, or the rock. Yeah. See, the thing is I'm not a fan of the rock. I can't say that enough, but Sylvester Stallone. Yeah. Like, so I, I get a kick out of that stuff. So like having a, a historian and protecting all of that. Yeah. That's, that's nice to hear. Okay, yeah. So to start our recapitulation episode, I would, you know, also, now I know why that's abbreviated. Uh, (laughs) I'd like to provide an overview of like why we're doing this. And one is that since some of this content is pretty dense and designed to educate, it's important to just recap for me to strengthen and develop a critical thought process. Being critical is important to me. And uh, since I talk about that all the time, I'm, I'm guessing everybody is, is jumping on that bus too. Anyways, um, these concepts are something that I, I take on uh, into my own fitness journey and training journey and integrating into that. So in other words, we're all learning together. And um, so that's one reason these episodes are great. And then number two, we know our audience loves the summary episodes. Uh, All all the recap episodes that I've produced have done really well. And so the downloads to me always speak for themselves. This is telling me that our audience is curious and open to learning, uh, which is great to connect with you all from all over the world. So welcome, welcome. And number three is that Uh, This episode is an invitation to, again, integrate the concepts and the knowledge. I'd also like to put a stake in the ground that we are anti-Insta education. And personally, I'd like to disrupt the, the, the pop culture of just, you know, listening to one, you know, Insta education video and, uh, you know, trying to, you know, take that as truth um, instead of looking into it further and thinking about it and looking at how things actually work. 
So I love that we can support our audience in how that is done, you know, how we pick apart things and think about it. So PJ, Gigi, do you have anything to add about like who benefits from the uh, art in our audience and who listens um, and why they would listen? Yeah, PJ, I'll go first on this one. And Jen, I totally understand your perspective on that. And in terms of, you know, Insta education for health and fitness and, you know, human movement science, but I would actually say that I'm not against it. And I think our podcast as a whole is not against it. It's more about knowing how to take learning critical thinking skills and hopefully developing them for yourself so that when you're scrolling through your Instagram, you know, like just what categories to put things in. So if, Mm. you know, you're seeing an Instagram post about like literally one of the hundreds I get every day about the best glute exercises or the best butt shaping exercises, if you've been listening to our podcast and now you maybe know something about torque, you're like, well, hey, like the thing they're showing there, how would that be the best glute exercise? So that would ultimately be the ideal. So um, at least my perspective is that uh, I'm not against it and the podcast is not against it. It's more about developing the critical thinking skills so that someone can know how to compartmentalize all the information they see. Mm. PJ? Yeah, I think that um, the first thing that we try to do with our audience is get them to ask a question. And to sort of echo what Gigi is saying there, that's sort of an instant reaction that we would want people to, uh, to produce. It's sort of like, instead of listening to what someone says and just absorbing it and say, okay, I'm going to run out and do that, the immediate reaction should be, why? Get get me more information and tell me why I should be doing this, not whether I should be doing this. Mm. And you know that was something that I I learned a long time ago in working in fitness equipment manufacturing and working with some engineers. And you know I used to joke that the difference between an engineer and a scientist is engineers ask how can we make this work, and scientists ask why should we make this work. Mm-hmm. And that's what we want our audience to be able to do is to immediately come up with a reasonable question, not just the question why, but to ask a specific targeted question that gets to why. And then the rest of the learning experience really has to come from getting deeper into the subject matter, trying to understand more perspectives, because our podcast is all about perspective. It's not about how much you know of one thing that counts. It's How many different perspectives can you understand so that you have a more well-rounded appreciation of whatever it is we're discussing? So I think there's a bit of both. I think there's a bit of an instant response, why, get deeper. And then there's this critical thinking, problem-solving component that people need to develop so that they can make better decisions, as Gigi said. Our... I'm going to start with the most downloaded ones. Woohoo. And so those are the fine print and both conversations with Dr. David Beam. Okay. Yeah. I, uh, for me, um, the, I feel the earth move 
Um, so I probably downloaded that on all my devices because I just I had to listen to that a couple times. I really enjoyed it. But I'd like to start with the fine print because um, of the essence of what we just said. <laughs> um, I can I wanted to play a clip uh, from this if you guys are okay with that. But I mean, mm -hmm. just to speak to the essence of this, um, you know, uh, it can we give them give give the audience a little bit more about what the fine print is and um, how it came to be. Sure. Well, so the fine print evolved from, you know, our podcast, we cover a lot of research. And as PJ just said, you know, the what commonly happens is that someone reads something and then instantly reads it, takes it, you know, hits the ground running with it. Um, and, you know, look, you can, no matter what your belief is, you could find you could find evidence to support your belief in just about anything in health and fitness, but all evidence is not the same. And when you start to look at the fine print, you know, the, uh, an analogy for like really looking through a paper and understanding it. And by the way, that's why we're lucky to have PJ, who's an actual research scientist, as opposed to myself, who's merely a clinician and somehow barely got through stats, you know, a lot of the things that if you just read the abstract and the conclusion of a paper, if you don't understand the actual uh, statistical part, you're going to miss a lot. And look, it's, we, there are times where the authors of a paper, um, you know, perhaps given certain you know, agendas are trying to make their information look a certain way. Sometimes they're probably just, this is what they believe based on the numbers they saw. But the fine print is really about looking at research papers through, with a fine tooth comb and looking specifically, going through all the statistics and seeing if the statistics match the story. And what we covered last season was a paper that was looking at the differences between a cable chest press and a barbell bench press. And as we went section by section, it became very clear that their conclusions were not based on sound, credible scientific investigation. This season, we pulled up a paper that um, was done by a well-known fitness gym provider. And it was looking at a group of uh, individuals that either were part of a group that did personal training that this particular health club operator is known for or a group that did not and whether or not the the group that did personal training had a more uh, beneficial outcome for acquiring lean body mass okay um can we go to the clip sure full sure. purpose to it one is let's do a, a study that's done in a gym environment instead of a lab environment because if there's any criticism about research coming from fitness it's that it is done in a lab where the conditions are very sterile and very controlled mm -hmm. right that's not what necessarily happens in real life what you do in real life is what they're looking at in this gym environment um that's the first part of it and then i guess the second part is okay do you get better results when you're supervised or right. do you get equally good results when you're on your own. And so that's what was being determined here. Right, because every gym that has personal trainers, you know, markets that, you know, you get 
significant results when you use one of their trainers, but none of them actually have a scientific study that provides evidence for that. So, okay. Um, <laughs> so one of the comments that I got from that episode was just like, oh, those are some really great questions as a trainer and someone who does research. I really appreciate just the questions. And that's all they said. And I thought that was really nice. Um, I um, want to hear what uh, PJ has to say. Yeah, so there's there's some additional things to think about when our listeners are uh, following along with our description of these studies. And as Gigi mentioned, sometimes when you look at them, you you look at the statistics and you come up with different conclusions or you start to question some of their conclusions. Another reason that we do this is because there are a lot of questions that go unasked. So these papers are written the way the authors want to write them. But if you take a good close look at some of the data, you can ask additional questions, which is how any research actually occurs. Someone does a study, they set up a structure, they get their results, and someone else looks at it and says, well, what if you did this? And that gives them an opportunity to do another research project. Part of what we want to do with this is to look at these studies more deeply and say, well, what's missing? What are they not saying? What information is actually staring you in the face in these studies, but we're not paying attention to it because either we don't know how or because the authors haven't told us. So a lot of what we do is to really uncover hidden information, gems of information that exist in these studies that we otherwise wouldn't know. And that's, that is also part of the fine print. But mm. this one in particular, you know, being in the equipment manufacturing business, we were always writing white papers. And I think the next season, we're going to do an episode looking at white papers. And yeah. what a white paper is, it's a research paper, but it's not peer reviewed. So it doesn't go through that critical review process. Now, that doesn't make it bad necessarily. If the science is good, if methods are good, then it could be good. It could be really meaningful. But we you know, want to look at this particular paper because it really straddles the fence between, well, it doesn't actually, as it turns out when we get into it, um, we think that it's a legitimate research study and it's apparently set up that way, but the reality is it's really not. And this is where the listeners have to try to understand that just because something's done in a lab, and that's the clip, the part of the clip that you mentioned, that you played mm -hmm. for the listeners here, what we're talking about is laboratory science usually can be very, very good. And it also can contradict some of the things that people do. And so when practitioners, when people in the real world hear the things from these research studies that do contradict their practices, the first line of defense is to say, well, that's done in a, in a lab, but it's not the real world. I mean, that's done with very, very controlled in a controlled environment with controlled variables, and that's how they get their outcome. But that's not what really happens. So what we wanted to do is take on a study that actually put it in the gym. So we eliminated that argument as a reason not to hear these results and not to see what they're saying, but then to say, hey, look, this isn't really research. This is just, this is pseudoscience, right? It's marketing couched in research. And we all need to be aware of that because that's very dangerous stuff. 
Mm. Yeah. I, um, yeah. I, I mean, like I said, I, I get a lot from that, those two episodes, um, because, uh, I, I, I thought to me, reading research in general, um, is a skill, uh, on itself. Um, and it's something I didn't do for a couple years until, you know, maybe, yeah, I mean, I totally just left it behind. I had to read a whole lot of research for a period of time. I stopped. And then when I picked it back up again, I was like, oh, oh, whoops. <laughs> um, so I, I, you know, I, I totally have that uh, value point <laughs> for these episodes. But it's um, not, listen, it's not just you. It's, you know, you pick up a, a newsstand periodical or you go online and you get onto one of these online journals and they're talking about all these new findings and they cite research that's mm -hmm. been done in the laboratories. But the problem is they're misquoting the information or mm -hmm. they're misciting the information. And so we all take this stuff for granted because it's written by legitimate journalists, but they don't understand research either necessarily. And so all they're doing Definitely. is looking at the abstract and repeating what they're saying. And yeah. it just, it, it proliferates this misinformation, which is not helping anybody. The misinformation, feeding the misinformation beast. Okay. <laughs> oh man. Okay. I, um, I'm excited to move on to, I feel the earth move. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Me okay. Too. Um, both of these episodes uh, that were with Dr. David Bame this season are just phenomenal. I. Um, He's a national treasure for Canada. Uh, he is a national treasure. Yes. Um, I, yeah. I can, I'm on board with that 100%. So, what I thought was interesting about this one was that um, it's, it, it, I thought it was going to be all about balance and different progressions in and out of that. And what was, and, and, and some of the research that he's done. Um, and then I got this like really cool introduction into power training and I want to say reintroduction, I guess. I, I, I think um, it's a term that we have not settled on in the exercise science or human movement science uh, fields. Mm -hmm. So I loved that part of the episode. Um, and yeah, so I'll, I'll leave it at that because I could keep going, but what, what did you guys take away after recording and all that? Gigi. So Jen, one of the things I like about doing these season, uh, ending wrap up episodes is that I go back and listen to the podcasts. And for some of them, I haven't listened to them since, uh, we first published them, and this was one of them. And so listening to this one, actually, it laid some of the groundwork for things we talked about later in the season. And one of the things that caught me um, this time around is when uh, Dave was talking about a study he did where he had people doing a dumbbell press on a stability ball, and there was a 60% reduction in you know load force output that someone could use on a stability ball versus stable platform um and he was talking about so obviously if you're trying to get stronger having to use 60 percent less load would not be the best recipe for getting stronger however he was talking about that when you're on these unstable surfaces the activation so there's a lot more co-contraction around the joint 
And that can be good, or that can be not so useful if you're trying to create fluid motion. But what he was saying is that um, for uh, if you are doing an exercise like that and the activation is higher, that you might actually tap into some of these type two fast twitch fibers um, and at a lower load. So his point, and this is around 13 minutes into this episode, if people want the timestamp. Um, and he, his point was that if you had a recently injured, let's say labrum, and you were trying to take load off of that joint, that a way you could go about it would be doing some sort of, you know, using the instability and using the co-contraction and still, you know, we'll talk about it later in future episodes about, uh, recruiting, um, motor unit types, but, um, I, that was a, a really interesting point of the conversation and we'll, it, we'll talk about uh, those concepts later in future episodes. Okay. Um, yeah. So the, the, the whole idea that the, the, the different muscle fibers were brought into this conversation was this one of the surprises for me and um, one of the things I really enjoyed. So PJ? Yeah, I think this one was something that it's an episode I wanted to do for a long time. And because it became very fashionable for people to do squats on BOSUs or squats on physio balls. And, you know, for me, it's always a parlor trick to be able to do those <laughs> things. But the, the real issue is why are we doing these things? Because we can or because we should. And <laughs> some of the early work that Dave Bain did was showing, as Gigi said, a significant reduction in force output. When I was at Cybex, we did a comparable study looking at push-ups on medicine balls versus push-up on the, on the ground. And when you're on a medicine ball, you're producing significantly less force. And so the question then becomes, what do you want to do? Because when you're on this unstable surface, this labile surface, the system has to make a decision. Do I want to move or do I want to stabilize? Being on such an unstable surface inherently makes the system want to stabilize. And how does it do that? By co-contracting all over these joints. It involves a lot of musculature. That's what Gigi just said. So if your objective is to involve a lot of musculature, then you're going to accomplish that. But that doesn't improve movement and it doesn't improve force output because a lot of these co-contracting muscles are antagonistic in nature. They're working against each other. And so at the end of the day, you're not really improving your strength or power. So there was the connection to power. If you want to improve power, it's not necessarily effective to do it on an unstable surface. So it was really nice to talk to Dave about some of the research that he's done get a better explanation from someone who's been in the trenches looking at this, what he has seen. But on the other hand, if you can get more fast twitch motor unit activation, even if it's just isometric, right? That's stabilization. If you're getting rapid pulse-like stabilization, then you are activating those motor units. That's a good thing. But we wanna make sure that we have a clear objective in what we're doing with instability training because trying to move and stabilize at the same time doesn't work. That's just mm -hmm. confusing and it creates spasticity. And so when you, people, you see people doing it, 
and they're all shaking and wobbling. It's not because they're unstable. It's because the brain doesn't know whether they want to stop or go. So it does both at the same time and you start shaking. That's spasticity. That's not instability. Mm -hmm. So it was great to hear it from someone like Dave who can really give us a researcher's perspective on what this thing is and maybe dispel this notion that everybody ought to be training on BOSUs and physio balls. Mm-hmm. Well, to, uh, it's funny because we actually used it as the name of the second episode, but he proposes even with the, um, you know, labile is the term for like unstable, squishy surfaces. So he, you know, he kind of suggests that there's a, there's a Goldilocks zone for using these types of devices to where, um, you know, you might, depending again on what you're trying to accomplish that, you know, you might find something where it provides a little bit of instability or provides enough instability to maybe get some co-contraction, but you can still get some, you know, fluid motion and not so much instability to where, yeah, it's, it's, it's making it very difficult for the system to move. Mm. Well, speaking of the Goldilocks zone, I'm ready to move on to that one. I hope you guys are. Yeah, yeah sure. Okay. Yeah, I um, yeah, I, ha- I do have I have more to say about that episode. Ugh. But you guys have to listen, everyone out there in podcast land, wherever you are, because it is a worldwide trend. It seems like that people get on these Bosu balls, and you know. It looks like they're doing the hokey pokey, but they're trying to exercise. Anyways, I um, the Goldilocks zone. Ho- it's probably the hokey pokey. <laughs> <laughs> it's not much exercise. <laughs> yeah. Um, so the, um, <laughs> the hokey pokey. I haven't thought about that in a long time. Okay. So <laughs> when you say that, I'm trying to think. What is the? Ho- I know what you put your right foot and you take your right. Oh uh, yeah. It's not easy to do in a stability ball, but I feel like I have seen it. Yeah. We're dating ourselves. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Um, It was a hit at the roller rinks back in the day. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, yeah. Um, Okay. Anywho, we went um, to different roller rinks. (laughs) The Goldilocks zone. Um, I also was able to, I found the TED talk that he did. Oh, Excellent, yeah. And so that will be in the show notes for you guys because it's a treat. It is great. So my opinion for this episode was that it was really dense, but it was so straightforward as well. So I was, it it had that, it was just so unique in that way. Like it had uh, so many different considerations in it as well as um, really practical stories and like case studies. Uh, PJ, you had one about the basketball mm-hmm. uh, uh, research that you did. And then um, even for myself, like I, I was so excited because of you get that you brought up that he brought up that the research that and paper that he did on foam rolling in the gastroc yeah. area and decreasing the pain. That so, that's a game changer. It's a game changer. I noxious have, inhibitory. What yeah. was the last word there? Dif- diffuse noxious inhibitory control. So we should there take we a go. minute to talk about that. If, Jen, do you have a clip that you're going to play for us? Or yeah, go ahead and talk about it, and I'll pull it up. So diffuse that. First of all, that's a that's a mouthful to say. Diffuse yeah, say noxious. <laughs> diffuse noxious inhibitory control. Diffuse noxious inhibitory control. Diffuse noxious inhibitory control. Wow. 
All right, not so bad. Um, anywho, I had never heard that term before, but you know, again, one of the best things about doing this podcast, and for me, just about learning in general, is when I've thought of something, but like I don't know how to categorize. It's just something I've seen and experienced, but I don't know how to explain it exactly. I don't know how to categorize it, and then I find that thankfully someone else has studied it and categorized it. So I have. And Jen, as a clinician and PJ, I know you spent some time in a clinic a while ago too, like diffuse noxious inhibitory control. If you have worked with human beings in any sort of, it could honestly even be in a psychological setting, but if you've worked with human beings in any sort of personal trainer, uh, you know, clinician capacity, you have definitely had the experience where someone has a lot of pain on one side of their body. Um, and then what it like you do something on the other side of their body and all of a sudden the pain they had initially on the, you know, let's say on their left side of the body disappears and you're like, wow, how did that magic, how did that happen? And so it happens diffuse noxious inhibitory control explains that when you stimulate pain, that your body recognizes that there's pain and it tries to do something about that. So it sends out these amines, these chemicals that um, are, are sort of our feel-good chemicals, for lack of a better term. They're analgesics. They, they reduce the pain. And they're not just focal to the area where you feel the pain. They get sent out globally. So let's say if you have pain in your left calf. So what he was talking about with these studies is that someone could have, um, they had people that were well-trained in finding adhesions and instead of foam rolling the side that had adhesions in their calf, they foam rolled the other side. And then when they went to inspect the side that had the adhesions again, they didn't feel as sensitive. And so it's not a magical process. It's that when you, I think actually, sorry, I might be explaining this a little bit. Um, it was they, kind of magical because they rubbed one side and the other. Yeah, but I can't remember if they, <laughs> I, I, I'd have to have the study in front of me. I can't remember if they... They uh, foam rolled the injured side first, but either way, diffuse noxious inhibitory controls. When there's a pain signal, your body sends out these analgesic chemicals that go globally. And so, when things when it goes globally, you can do something in your foot and you get better shoulder range of motion. You can do something in your calf and you get better neck range of motion. Yep, I got it right here. Ready? Mm -hmm. Cause a decrease in pain because you're breaking up these myofascial adhesions. Mm -hmm. so what we did was we had a, a massage therapist identify some um, tender spots in our subjects, I'm just trying to remember which muscle, in their calves. And then what we did was we rolled the calves. And of course, what you expect is the, the tender spots would become less tender. So there's an increase in the pain pressure threshold. Mm -hmm. But then the really interesting thing was we rolled the opposite calf. And when we rolled the opposite calf, the calf that was tender had less pain. We didn't even have to touch the calf. So this theory about you know, um, full motors breaking up adhesions and doing things like that, you don't have to break up adhesions to decrease the pain. You can roll any other part of your body and the pain goes down, again, because it's like these noxious inhibitory control. That was our, uh, our theory or hypothesis. All right. I loved it. Um, I also loved it because I've been talking about that paper for years and then it pops up on you guys' episode. I, I was 
I was so I was so excited. <laughs> I think the interesting part about that is, you know, just looking at it from a practical perspective, we can argue foam rolling from either side of the of the argument. You can say, oh yeah, it's great for you. Oh no, it's terrible. You're just mass mashing your tissues and tenderizing the meat, right? So like what good is that? And so there's been this ongoing debate as to whether foam rolling really has the effect that we want. This was just a whole different point of view. As mm -hmm. he said, it's not necessarily about foam rolling, breaking up adhesions in local areas. But the interesting part of it is the ability to actually cause pain reduction and relaxation globally within the system simply by creating you know, a noxious stimulation. You know when you're rolling. I did it today, actually. I'm, I was <laughs> rolling muscles, and I was in tears. I mean, it can hurt. But there's a benefit to that, interestingly enough. So I'm not a fan of no pain, no gain. But in this case, I kind of like the concept. Hmm. Well, the other thing is, you know, we talk about this a lot on the podcast is, you know, it's not an either or thing. So the way I hear that as a clinician is that, so I need a trigger, which is the nox noxious stimulation. But let's say I just do a little bit of it. You know, what is the minimum amount of noxious stimulation I need? to get, you know, um, a maximum benefit. So I can do just a little bit on the affected side and then probably follow it up by doing some activity on the unaffected side because they said they rolled the other calf. So if I just get a little bit of that noxious stimulation, maybe that's enough to get like a robust diffuse noxious inhibitory control response. But, you know, something that everyone at home can try and play with and, and see. You know, there's one other part to this episode, which I really don't want to gl gloss over. Oh, sure. And that's the whole discussion on static stretching. Mm -hmm. Because mm -hmm. static that's stretching good. has achieved evil status <laughs> at this point, right? People Absolutely. say, don't, don't do static stretching. It's bad for you, blah, blah, blah. I mean, I hear this all the time. And what, you know, Dave said basically was nonsense. Static stretching works great. One of the reasons... And this gets to the fine print. One of the reasons that people say it's bad is because you have these studies which show that it actually creates issues. But what he was saying is, yeah, those studies, they had people stretching maximally for you know, <laughs> 30 minutes. And yeah, if you're going to do that, then you're going to cause pain and you could cause dysfunction. He said, there's nothing wrong with static stretching. And I think what we do in our world of fitness is we say, this is good, this is bad. Yes to this, no to that. We used to do that, we're not doing that anymore. Now that we have this new thing to do, we throw away everything that we used to do. <laughs> and what we're trying to say on, on our podcast is, don't do that, everything is good. The things that you did 10 years ago are still legitimate things to do now, right? So just because there's this conventional wisdom that says you shouldn't be doing any static stretching, that doesn't mean you shouldn't be doing any static stretching. On the other hand, what I mentioned in the basketball research that I did was gaining flexibility doesn't necessarily make you better either. Mm -hmm. So the goal isn't to become maximally flexible. The Goldilocks zone is all about finding the right amount of flexibility so that you can achieve your goals, not trying to become as flexible as possible. So I thought that was a really interesting message that he delivered to us that I appreciated. Yeah, I got a lot from the whole episode because you know I am one of those uh, people who has said that stretching is evil. 
And, um, you know, I, you. <laughs> <laughs> um, and it's, you know, for me, it's, it's, it's refreshing to go through that process and, you know, not the process of stretching, but the process of, you know, finding something and being able to create a new, um, perspective, you know? Mm -hmm. So I, yeah, again, like this, is, it has great stories, great analogies. There's ketchup bottles, there's drugs. It's a great episode guys. And Jen, along those lines, I just want to mention one last thing about that. So, um, Whenever I would read research on stretching, one thing I was interested in was to see if there's any credible research studies that could show that stretching actually creates more muscle length, because I think lay people assume that stretching gives you a long, you know, there's all sorts of marketing, like leaner, longer mm. muscles. And, um, and the overwhelming majority of research in the area of stretching shows that there's no actual change in muscle length. But what Dave talks about and sorry i don't have the timestamp, but i believe it's in the first quarter of the episode so he talks about how actually research done by colleagues of his shows that you actually you don't change the length of the muscle but you can change its angle and by changing its fiber angle slightly it's more amenable to the way it slides and it can in a way, it doesn't. Uh, it, it doesn't make the muscle longer. It doesn't make you any taller, but it can give you more range of motion. And so, there aren't a lot of studies that show that like it can actually change the muscle architecture. But he has been. He's his people that he's collaborated with have shown that that that's not out there nearly enough. And one of the biggest uh, for people that are fairly well educated, one of the biggest reasons they're against static stretching is one, they're concerned about post-stretching, you know, muscle inhibition, but two, they think it's just a waste of time because it doesn't do anything on a muscle architecture level. And that doesn't appear to be true. Um, all right. Yeah. Any more? I don't, I think we got to move on because they're, they just, you guys are going to have to listen, you know, <laughs> <laughs> let's move on. Yeah. So the next uh, ones I want to bring into the spotlight are in the moment. Um, so for me, the real talk here is that the that um, these episodes are like a level up for fitness enthusiasts, fitness professionals. Uh, I think anyone that sets, that sets foot into a workout space should have an understanding of moment, torque, and these episodes, right? So um, I like that you offer these episodes so that our audience can sit and in the room and have these conversations and have an idea about how things work on such a practical level. So um, I can play a clip to start. Sure, go ahead, please going down through the beam and it's actually projecting directly through the axis. Mm -hmm. And if that force that I'm creating is projected right through the center of the axis, mm -hmm. nothing happens. Now I've got a balanced state again. There is no torque being created. So the only way that I can actually create a torque is if the force that I'm creating is off center, is equal. 
So we said, you know, we're not creating pork, guys. We're creating torque. <laughs> Did you say pork, not torque? <laughs> no, it, 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 you know, I'm playing it through an iPad. From oh, okay. I, mean, I was like, just wanted to say we're talking about torque, not pork. <laughs> it ain't bacon. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so um, yeah, what do you want to? Uh, I think the best way to talk about this episode is actually just give people reasons why they should listen to it because it is one of those that it might not be sexy on the cover of, you know, or what seemingly could be interesting to you guys, but trust me <laughs> on that one. You know, the, the thing that Gigi and I talk about all the time and, and we're constantly going back and forth, they'll send me a video clip or we'll, we'll look at something on YouTube or we'll watch people doing things. And it's very common for folks to attribute certain exercises to certain muscle development, specific muscles that are active. Um, and the reality is it's not the movement that's creating that action or activity in the muscles. It's the biomechanics and the loading that will activate or cause activation of those muscles. People confuse movement with biomechanics. They're not the same thing. Movement is part of biomechanics, but we need to understand how these loads impact our joints, create moments, and then what the muscular response is to those things. And it's very common. I can't tell you how many times I've seen some fitness or sports performance guru talking about some exercise and what that exercise is going to do. And that person is 100% incorrect because the mechanics are wrong. And we've even done it in our lab at Cybex. We reproduce those movements and we measure the forces and we measure the joint moments. And it's not even close to what these folks are saying. So part of understanding biomechanics is to get a better handle on what exercises actually do but for me, more importantly, it also helps us to understand why people move the way they do. Mm. So when we assign a movement to somebody, an exercise to somebody, we have a preconceived notion of what that should look like. We're taught to do this. Here's the form that your exercise, your movement should take. And we're judging people on how closely they adhere to that prescribed form. But the reality is they're going to solve that problem according to how their body deals with the biomechanics. So watching people move gives you a hint as to why they're doing it, how they are solving the problem. But without a knowledge of the biomechanics of it, it's impossible to interact with someone on a meaningful level. Mm. I um, got an idea while you were speaking, and that's it. Um you know, fit, think fit, be fit. My, my goal is like, I want this to be like a whole network media company for really awesome conversations about fitness, just right in line with what we're doing. Right. So, um, I hope to one day create like a game show. <laughs> okay. <laughs> okay. Sign me up. Okay. Do tell. Well, do tell it is, um, similar to what you just said, PJ, can we set these things up? Can we uh, talk about the biomechanics and like, you know, make it like a guess, like, who, you know, audience, who is right? And there'll be like three like little labs set up. And then, um, you know, the, we'll get to laugh a lot and uh, test our, and, and I'm really uh, have some 
mental gymnastics around what an exercise is actually doing. So anyways, that's my idea. I'm going to throw that in there. Gigi, what do you have? <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I think, yeah, Jen, to your point, this is not a good one to like go through every line of what we speak about in these episodes. Someone's just going to have to listen. But just to piggyback on what PJ is saying, um, look, the the point of this, between the three of us here, we've got a lot of certifications and degrees and stuff, and hopefully we sound reasonably intelligent. But if you don't know what torque is, you still, at the end of the day, have to take our opinion on all this stuff. And we sincerely don't want you just to take our opinion. We want you to have the tools, to have the critical thinking skills, to look, and even that stuff we're saying. And by the way, PJ, you have to check our Instagram because we got a question. But we like when people listen to what we're doing and saying and then question because that's what we do. So without understanding torque, when it comes to exercise, it's really fundamental. And if you don't have even you don't need to, you know, start working in a lab next week. But if you don't have a basic understanding, you're really stuck at the opinion level of exercise. And the whole point of doing this was to help people in a meaningful way get past that. So um, they can have the tools to analyze exercises for themselves and be like, well, I don't know, wait a second. Um, <laughs> and that's great. Yeah, that's, that's a really good point. We, we're not suggesting that once you break an exercise down and try to understand the biomechanics, that evaluation returns a good or bad result, right? And we're not saying any exercise is good or bad. We're just yeah. saying, here are the mechanics. And knowing that someone will be empowered to make a decision on whether and how to use that exercise. Not, oh, let me just do it because everybody's telling me to do it or because some prominent fitness or sports guru tells me to do it. Mm. Um, that's not the reason to do anything. And these episodes get pretty deep. I mean, the, the first episode in the moment um, really went through a very thorough, deep explanation of the components of a torque system and how they interact to create joint moments. So you have to kind of work through that. The second episode is kind of more fun because we start breaking down movements and we start to look mm -hmm. at some of the differences. In this case, it was the difference between a barbell bench press and a dumbbell bench press and how those are different. The question always comes up and, and I've heard this so many times, you know, if you're doing a barbell bench press and let's say you're doing 200 pounds and it's pretty close to your maximum, why is it you can't split that into two 100 pound dumbbells and do the same press with those 100 pound dumbbells? Now, everyone I ask of that question says, oh, joint stability. It's not really, there's some joint stability issue there, but it's not really an, a joint stability issue. It is a joint moment issue. And that's what that episode really gets people to understand. If you, if you know the biomechanics, if you figure out the moments, the joint moments, then you'll understand why one is harder than the other. So we want people to start looking at this. There's a lot of information out there. There are sources of information that people can tap into. I think historically, it's something that we don't include in our education programs in the fitness industry. They are in grad school programs, but not in fitness programs. And mm -hmm. It needs to be included. And this is a big component that's missing in fitness education. And yeah. we're trying to fill the void a little bit. Mm -hmm. Yeah. 
Um, and, you know, as in the training, as a trainer sitting in the trainer's seat, um, you know, I just uncover more evidence that a lot of this is guessing when we are working with people. So the opportunity to calculate and, and be able to serve a, a really well-designed exercise is so awesome. Like it is, I just cannot be uh, more excited and adamant about what that means to um, me, who is someone who values their exercise and their strength training and uh, so much. So um, yeah, if you guys listen to this one and uh, if you do, let me know if you have any names for this game show and um <laughs> that is your homework dj's really good at coming up with quippy little title so he'll <laughs> give him he'll, he'll he'll get you one i'll get you one i'm the title master yeah. for our podcast so but you see do you, did you see my vision these three little labs and whose hypothesis comes closer i'm right with you okay yeah totally power play mm-hmm. uh it's about time and uh size matters mm-hmm. um because Okay. Wow. Um, I learned so much about thresholds, fatigue. Um, for me, that was, those were the huge takeaways from all three episodes. Mm-hmm. Um, and, um, and then just, I love the, the whole questioning route that you guys went down, like the outcomes of different amounts of time and, the various motor units and what the relationships were and, and work to rest ratios. And, um, we got, I got some great input from our, uh, audience on this one, which was really exciting for me because I, I'm, I'm like creating this community of really like exercise thinkers, you know, and I'm just so proud that you, all of you out there are, are gathering and starting to, you know, see a whole new side to exercise. And these three episodes are killer for, for that goal. So, um, well, what was some of the input, by the way, I'm curious. Uh, well, we went, I, we, we went over it in the live, uh, thing that we did, live oh, thing, okay. the yeah. live event that we did. Um, when I, uh, prompted the audience, they brought up, um, uh, hypertrophy, um, as to, you know, these long sustained contractions, um, which was funny. Cause like that, that led right into, um, size matters. Mm-hmm. So I thought that was interesting. Um, I can't remember what the other ones were, um, okay. off the top of my head. Let me, I'll look at my notes real quick. So, um, what kind of, uh, encouragement and feedback do you guys have for these episodes and, or if you want to start by just kind of talking about each one separately um, and how how they are different, that would be, I think, pretty cool. You know, if you want to take that one. Yeah, PJ, you want to? Yeah, sure. I can leave this off. So, you know, we started with power play. Um, it, it's funny because it was a very timely recording that we did. Power play sort of pays homage to hockey, and I'm a UMass Amherst alum and right after we recorded that episode was the day after UMass won the national hockey championship so 
This is a very exciting moment, but it was not an episode about hockey. It was about power. Yeah, we wanted to provide some different insights into power because Gigi, during the episode, I think, made the very astute observation that people often attribute power to a specific type of exercise training, snatches, clean and jerk, those things, so that it's the exercise that determines whether an exercise or a movement is a power developing movement. And what we wanted to do was say, let's put, set that aside for a minute and just think of what is happening when we're trying to produce power. How do we do it? What is the system doing intrinsically? And instead of looking at it in the context of movements, we looked at it in the context of substrates, which is something that we talked about a lot in our first season, a substrate being a prerequisite, something we need to have at our disposal to be able to accomplish a movement task. And so we looked at power from that perspective and we introduced this whole notion of motor unit recruitment, rate of tension development, motor unit recruitment. This is how we need to access the central nervous system in order to get a power output. And then the last thing we did, and then I'll turn it over to Gigi, is we also related human power development to machine power development because people often confuse those things so that if you're on a cardio bike, right, or if you're on some type of elliptical trainer, we see information displays that tell us how many watts we're producing. Well, we're not producing those watts. We're producing speed in the system and there's resistance in the system and what the machine is producing is that output. So it's a machine output. What we produce is not the same thing. And the common misunderstanding is that the faster we go, the more power we're producing because that's what happens on a bike. But that's not what happens with human beings, right? Because that would suggest that peak power occurs at peak velocity. And that's not true. Peak power occurs well ahead of peak velocity. So the faster you go, actually the less force you produce and which is the force velocity curve. And therefore, as you go faster and faster, your power is dropping. So we wanted people to understand that it's not about how fast you go, it's about how fast you accelerate. And that's a whole different idea to put across. Yeah, so um, I'm imagining, you know, what this looks like in spin class, okay? <laughs> so if, <laughs> and so what I see when um, people are, really putting in or creating watts and putting out energy and power through the bike is um, totally different um, presentation than when they're just going really fast. And uh, if, and so I've been on the podium of this situation. That's that, that, that is where my visual is. I've been in the, uh, the teacher role in a spin mm -hmm. class. Mm -hmm. And um, by the way, um, it, I, I attributed that time in my life as a DJ, not really a teacher. <laughs> Fair enough. And yeah, you know, I and I still I'm diva. I'm okay. With, yeah. What was that? Or a diva. Diva. Yeah. Well, DJ. Um, <laughs> and uh, we. Anyway, so I would, and there was just like such a difference. You would see one person like you uh, really it just looked totally different. And then the person with the, um, that wasn't 
uh, just moving really fast. Like their head was moving, their shoulders were moving, like every, like the bike was moving versus uh, people putting the effort into the pedal is a better way to put it. Anyways, so is that kind of the, what, what we were trying to say? Like well, the difference between the two? So apropos of this conversation, these three episodes are in our catalog, some of the ultimate, it depends, uh, <laughs> conversation so look someone mm-hmm. could be so for uh, again the the thing to keep in mind here is when we're talking about power like pj said we're not talking about an exercise we're really talking about rate of tension development um and you can get that from spinning at a re- you know if you're if you literally have zero resistance on then we're getting a little bit outside the spectrum of you know what's going to be effective but you could have a low resistance and, you know, just move really fast and, and create a high rate of tension development. You're probably not going to sustain, you know, if you listen to the podcast, you'll understand why that's probably not going to be sustainable for 55 minutes. But on the other end, you could have really high resistance on the bike and try to push into it as hard as you can. And, you know, you're going to get some high rate of tension development. And even that, you know, you're not going to be able to, to, to sustain for a while, but it, depends and you know we get into some territory where you're not necessarily at one extreme or the other like what happens when you're doing sort of these long fatiguing type contractions and we cover paper that um someone is basically doing like a version of a shrug for 30 minutes then intermittently just doing like taking the shrug from partial range to end range and what happens in terms of the recruitment um so this these conversations are really you know, we get into the area of it depends and context-based and, but I think the things to tease out that we feel, you know, secure in saying is that power is really about rate of tension development and the best way to get after it is surprisingly lower load with the intention of a very high velocity. And we should talk about, we should put a pin in intention for a second or high load with the intention of moving at a very high velocity. So yeah, I thought that was really fun uh, play. And it it was like a creative uh, thought thinking process for me. I was like, oh, okay. So the intention to move at a high velocity and um, I my, my brain got a little uh, lost in that in a good way. So I, I specifically that part, I remember. Um, what were you going to say, PJ? Yeah, I mean, that also uh, harkens back to the episode we did with Dave Bame. That's right. Uh, You've Got Nerve, (laughs) in which we discussed his landmark paper on the speed-specific response as a result of the intention to move fast, not necessarily whether one actually moves fast. Because we know, according to the law of acceleration, the heavier the load, the lower the rate of acceleration. You just can't move it as quickly. But if you intend to move it quickly, then we can get recruitment up to the high threshold motor units, which we need to do in order to improve our power output. That took us into the last episode, hypertrophy, or it actually went into it's about time. So it's -hmm. about time was then looking at that same phenomenon, but now superimposing this time element on it. How long can you do these things and still get this response that we're looking for? 
And we introduced some really interesting papers that show if you create these, what they call chronic contractions, which are ongoing mm -hmm. sustained contractions, what happens is the central nervous system changes the firing thresholds on those fast twitch motor units to the point that you can't even turn them on anymore. Mm -hmm. Now, it makes sense because under normal conditions, if you have to get out of the way of the bus and those motor units are fatigued, you're not moving. So it's a self-preservation mechanism. But we also learned that um, there are conditions that you can override that function. And so it becomes this real gray area of how the system works. But essentially, you need to work on acceleration. That's what it comes down to. And it's mm -hmm. acceleration working with lighter loads and it's acceleration working with heavier loads. Yeah. And I'd love to pay some respect for the people in some of those studies from <laughs> yeah. that episode. Jeez. Yeah. 30 minute trug, yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, I was actually, um, I was having like quite a, a meta experience with that one because I was at the gym listening to that one, which sometimes I do listen to podcasts when I'm at the gym. Um, and <laughs> I had to stop what I was doing for one of those. And I was like, wait, what were they doing in that study? So um, <laughs> anyways, I just wanted to point that out. I thought it was a fun takeaway. Jen, I just want to bring up one thing quickly here. So in PowerPlay also, and I have the timestamp here, it's about 37 minutes. So one of the things that bugs me in terms of like, you know, social media, power, exercise discussions and uh, posts and stuff like that is that it's always so focused on the concentric phase of an exercise and the force absorption component. Um, because theoretically, someone could listen to this and say, all right, great, I'm just going to load up a leg press with a 1000 pounds. And, you know, just intend to move it really quickly. And that's the only type of rate of tension development training I want to do. And yeah, a tov, that's you will, you certainly should exploit your you know, high threshold motor units to fire at a high rate of tension development. However, whether how well that's going to apply into a setting, if you're doing a depth jump and you have to very rapidly decelerate your body's mass being accelerated by gravity into the ground and then jump back up, that if you're only power training and rate of tension development training is, is using super heavy loads with an intention, um, I think you're really missing a big part of the conditioning you need to apply that sort of stuff in a full spectrum um, yeah, fitness ecosystem program. Yeah, one of the things we highlight in these episodes is the fact that agonists and antagonists have to work together. And we often think of that in the context of, well, the positive is agonist and the negative is antagonist. But as we move faster and faster, those muscle groups work within the same direction of motion. So if I'm doing a high velocity movement, high velocity chest press, I'm accelerating using the agonist, right? The shoulder flexors, but I'm decelerating using the antagonist, the shoulder extensors. They work together. They work in a coordinated fashion. So even if you're doing heavy load, rapid intended movement, you're going to get the acceleration component to that. But at the end of the motion, it's gravity that's decelerating that load. And we need to pay attention to the eccentric component, 
which is not the return of the movement, but it's eccentric at the end of a high velocity motion when those muscles have to slow the joint down. That's often overlooked in some of the training that's done, which by the way, I think is also overlooked in professional sports, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And, you know, with overhead athletes. Mm-hmm. I don't think there's enough focus on that. Mm. So yeah, it's an important component that seems to be not ignored, but people just don't don't see it, aren't aware of it, and they certainly are not practicing it. Well, I certainly think there's even more to share on this subject, and I I hope you guys visit it again because it was um, I, I think it really highlighted uh, you know how like the knowledge that you all have and the experience. It was just it was such a really well done, and uh, I think. Um, not to, it was well done, but it was also well received, even though it was on the longer side, mm-hmm. it had mm-hmm. really great start and stop moments where it had, you know, a very complete, uh, thought process where you could even, um, picture the exercises that you were doing. And I just wanted to say, it's like really hard to do. So really great well- job. PJ is the editor, so he gets full credit for all that. And trust me, you have no idea what he's what he has to contend with behind the scenes. So if there's an Oscars for podcast, we should submit him for uh, editing. Yeah, uh, I'm looking into it. <laughs> it's um, yeah. So when we were looking at these, we did recognize that they went on for quite a while, and we had to decide: is this something we want to split into two episodes, or do we want to? keep it together and really get through the information. And I think it just worked better that way. You know, yes, it's long, but it's worth it because we do get through these concepts. And I think people will understand it better rather than having to wait a week to hear the next part of it. You know, there are some episodes that are amenable to that. These I think need to be cohesive and and together. And, you know, I'm not apologizing for making them long. I think mm-hmm. it's worth it. Um, right Right on. Okay. What about size matters? Yeah. Okay. Well, so size matters. But talk uh, about like, okay, so it was a hypertrophy episode, but it also got into some, you know, matters of size in a different way that I thought was pretty interesting. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, so yeah, the episode was based on hypertrophy because it seemed like we were, you know, basically talking about it without giving it it it's it's due uh deep dive in power and time under tension um so we want to talk about how exactly that so the time under tension and the rate of tension development and how that affects your ability to increase muscle mass increase muscle size which is hypertrophy so we brought in one of my professors in grad school who i always enjoyed his his perspective and his delivery so we brought in dr fred demena um who is not only a researcher in this area he's actually his area is oxygen kinetics but he he certainly teaches exercise physiology as well but he he's also a former mr usa natural bodybuilder uh champion so he clearly understands what it's like to develop hypertrophy from a you know an experiential perspective so we thought it would be fun to bring him in and ask him some questions and do you have any tape you're going to queue up for us 
No, I oh, did. Okay. I can. Okay. No, yeah, it's okay. Stamp. I mean, I think this was really great because he did have these two sort of personas, if you will, right? Mm -hmm. So as a research physiologist and as a bodybuilder. And I thought, wow, you know, we're going to get a chance to hear someone talk about hypertrophy as like, this is it and bigger is better, which mm -hmm. is why we sort of kind of playfully entitled this size matters. And interestingly enough, that's not what he was saying at all. I mean, <laughs> that threw me for a loop. Like, I don't need to be bigger. I just need to look better. I don't care what you measure for me. It's do I look good in the mirror, which I just thought was really a fun change in the whole gestalt of what we're talking about. <laughs> gestalt. You don't hear yes, that. <laughs> this, this really kind of threw us. Um, but was interesting, his perspective. And, and this was a different episode for us because we recorded it with him. And then he cited some research and then we were looking at, we were listening, looking at it. We were looking at the research, but listening to him and I'm looking at Gigi and I'm saying, you know what? This just completely contradicted everything we did in the previous two episodes. This was a direct turnabout from what we were discussing. And we didn't have a chance to read those papers. And so I said, you know what? Let's pull up this paper that he's citing and read it. And when we did that, I, I can speak for myself. I saw some different conclusions in that than from what was discussed during the, the recording. So we ended up doing it as a retrospective. It was Gigi and I talking about this conversation we had with Fred and going back and forth between what we said in the previous conversation and like what we thought about some of those things. Um, and it was fascinating. Mm -hmm. So it does relate to it's about time and it relates to power we had a difference of perspective on how to activate motor units. And that was the big difference in the messaging. But we need to allow our listeners to tease that out and work that out for themselves. Mm. Yeah, I mean, um, and, you know, you also shared, a, um, it wasn't the same paper, but you shared another paper uh, mm -hmm. after, I think it was last week. Mm -hmm. Um, and I did not read the fine print. I got through a page and a half, but <laughs> those were tough. I have to say, you know, I'm a research scientist. Those were tough. Yeah. Were hard to get through. Yeah, absolutely. It was all about RNA encoding and I'm like, wait a minute, I have to read this stuff six times to understand it. Uh, but yeah. it was, they were interesting reads and they were very telling. Um, so, uh, Gigi, what, what do you have to add for this one? Yeah, I'm somewhere, you know, like I said earlier, like these three episodes to me are very much about it depends and it depends on context. And so, uh, yeah, people will have to listen to our take on we're we're talking about this Mitchell paper here. Um, and I don't know, I, I see I'm not as definitive, I think, as PJ in terms of seeing the outcomes the way he sees it. Um, I can I can make the argument for the other side as well um so and then on top of that since then jen on our ig live i mentioned that 
and I mentioned this to you, PJ, Brad Schoenfeld, to his credit, went back to his 2010 paper, which is considered like a citation landmark, and revised it and has come up with some different ways of looking at hypertrophy. And then I started reading, um, sorry, I can't remember the name of the author, PJ, of that paper you sent us. Um, oh, yeah, um, Andy... Um... Oh, I'm sorry. I forgot his last name. It's but okay. He's, we, he's from we the University of Kansas. So Andrew so I, Fry, sorry. Andy okay. Fry's paper, yeah. So I started reading that. And those the shown the good news is the Schoenfeld paper and that Fry paper seem to be pretty fairly compatible thus far. Um so I don't my my opinion on hypertrophy. Um I can't say it's 180 degrees different than it was a month ago, but certainly and you know what, honestly, in terms of like what you need to do in the gym, it hasn't changed my mind that much on it. You know, maybe uh, see things slightly differently, but in terms of the mechanisms and what's actually happening, my brain is spinning. So we're going to have to pick this up a year from now for me to, <laughs> to process all this stuff. Suffice it to say that all of this literature at least brings to light the fact that there are different ways to grow different types of muscle fibers, mm -hmm. right? And doing it one way does not guarantee growth all across the spectrum of muscle fibers and motor units. And that was something that was espoused in the episode, Size Matters, suggesting that all you need to do is, you know, work at a high enough intensity and you can get activation all the way up the scale but these other studies don't necessarily support that. What they say is if you want to get up the scale, you have to approach it a little bit differently and in order to grow those fibers. So hypertrophy is important. It has value. What also shocked me in that was the discussion around whether increasing your muscle mass helps you lose weight. Mm -hmm. right? The thought is the more muscle you have, the, the faster your metabolism and the more you lose weight. Um, Dr. Demena's point was, well, that may be true, but you also have to eat more in order to sustain that muscle, in order to maintain it, because protein synthesis and muscle maintenance are active processes. And therefore, if you're going to put on that much more muscle, you have to eat a lot more in order to maintain that muscle. So it really nullifies any weight loss effect. So putting on more muscle doesn't help you lose weight and it doesn't help you burn fat. So that was sort of an interesting discovery from that conversation. But at the end of the day, Gigi and I always go back to, we have to work within a fitness ecosystem, that there is no one way of doing anything, that we should be doing things as many different ways as we possibly can, because that's how we get to move more effectively. That's how we create adaptation in the system that allows us to do all the things that we want to do. And it's not one thing, it's everything mm. and that's yeah. the message that we've mm -hmm. been sort of putting out there since we started this mm -hmm. okay on to the last episode to review today which is a run for the money i sent this to so many of my clients i thought the science was so relatable and it was honestly a breath of fresh air to, um, you know, put the chatter about how bad treadmills are on hold and just say, hey, let's like take a look at this.
from different uh, papers, research, angles, and also when you look at the show notes on this one, there were so many links that you all were able to gather as to how diverse, um, not diverse, how uh, polarized this conversation is in the like exercise and fitness um, spaces. So yeah, let's review that one. This is something that that I was teeing up for a long time because over the years I had seen so much negative press about treadmills. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, they don't do anything. It's passive hip extension. You're not getting what you're supposed to. I mean, there are so many misconceptions about treadmills. And what we really wanted to do is keep it as practical as possible. We had to introduce some science. We had to talk about some mechanics to at least explain on some level what was going on, but we wanted to keep it practical as well. And what we were trying to say here is that treadmills are not bad. You know, I've seen people say never run on treadmills. It's ridiculous. It's a waste of time. It's not a waste of time. You know, the, the, the very simple fact is you have a belt that's moving backwards at, let's say, eight miles per hour. And in order for you to be able to stay on the deck and not get thrown off the back, you have to move forward at eight miles per hour. It's relative motion. If the belt's going backwards, you have to be moving forwards. And when you take those two vectors and sum them, you end up with a zero position over the top of it. That doesn't make it a passive process. Mm-hmm. It is a highly active process. And if you need any evidence for that, look at your heart rate response. <laughs> How can it be passive and your heart rate goes up to 90% of your maximum? You know, it's not possible. So what we really wanted to do is dispel the myths about what the effects of treadmill running are. And then toward the end of the episode, we were getting into different types of treadmill design and what makes some better than others. And you know that gets into the mechanics of deck design and things like that. So, but we really wanted to wake people up to the fact that these are not bad products. They're actually very good for you. Yeah. I mean, there's like this chatter going on in the, in the, I don't know, amongst fitness experts, uh, that, um, you get disconnected on, on these machines and, and they don't provide like an environment that's stimulating. And I, I really, support you guys so much because you provide that alternate op- that option of being like oh this is what's going on it is stimulating and it can be a really good thing um so that then provides you know more opportunity for people to exercise and run in a safe environment you know it's like it's not uh, running outside isn't always the best thing either. And of course not. And not always um, possible either. And it's not always possible. And, um, I, so for me, like, I, I really think that conversation specifically in the cardio machines is pervasive. And uh, that's what I was, you know, getting to with my clients and sending this episode to them. I'm like, Oh, look, you know, there's, um, there's more reasons than just do it to, jump on these machines and use them they're you know they're very useful so Gigi, what's your yeah i mean to that point jen if i i'm sympathetic 
because I hear that too. The client would be like, ah, it's just too boring. And look, I, if you're running on a treadmill in a dank basement somewhere, like I'm not going to try to convince you that that's as exhilarating as running outside in the Swiss Alps somewhere. <laughs> but, you know, we talk about affordances sometimes. And if it's, there's 10 feet of snow outside and you live in, you know, the Northeast, you might not be able, if you want to, if it's important to you to keep running, this is an option for you. So, um, yeah, to me, that's sort of complaining that like a squat doesn't get your chest big enough. Like, look, this, this thing is a tool. It's, it's very effective. It can be used. It's not the same as running outside necessarily in terms of like visual stimuli, but in terms of the stuff that really matters, the kinetics and the kinematics, the biomechanics of it, they're super similar. And we cite some studies that we cite this one in particular that looks at, how different machines relay um, the, the joint motions and forces from the machine to walking, and they're basically identical. So the thing with treadmills is that I'm not sure it's the, it could be a vocal minority, but there's certainly <laughs> a group of people that run that just think technology bad. And it doesn't matter if we're talking about sneakers, socks, you know, uh, treadmills, just anything that's technological technology-based is bad. Although, frankly, I see a lot of these people wearing like compression garments for their knees and stuff. But, you know, those people think anything other than running barefoot outside is not real running. So part of the episode was about, you know, getting into the biomechanics. Is there is there evidence to that? There, there just clearly is not. And then even people that run on treadmills, you know, again, there's a subgroup from that that feel that only certain treadmills are like real running. And there's, you know, one treadmill in particular that's very popular with a certain type of uh, exercise program. So look, it's really hard to get people that know the ins and out of treadmill design. So we're lucky enough to have one. Um, and, you know, you're not going to hear about the durometer of treadmill belts and a lot of other places. So mm -hmm. uh, it was a good time to actually talk about because the truth is there are nuances and, and they're not small in treadmill design. And there are reasons why one could feel significantly different than others. So that, um, that if, you, if you're like me and you actually enjoy running on treadmills, um, it's good to know about the design and why one might feel comfortable for you and one might not. And so we wanted to cover that part of it too. Mm. Um, and uh, PJ, do you have anything else to say about passive hip extension? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's not passive hip extension. It's about <laughs> as active as it gets. And, you know, the, what's interesting, you know, there's just the last point from, for myself here is this is one topic of conversation that, probably has more folklore associated with it than legitimate scientific research. There's <laughs> just so much information out there and most of it's bogus. So if you really wanna understand what's going on, it, it pays to get into the biomechanics literature and find those studies that actually do the real work and measure things. Because once you do that, you realize that all this other stuff out there is pretty much nonsense. Mm. That is, um, I think that's a good challenge for our listeners because it's, it's, it, it's a big one. Um, anyway, um, anything ex that back to my other question, <laughs> <laughs> um, what do you want to share with us for, uh, any upcoming research or 
things that you're learning and research, uh, potential podcast episodes? Gigi? Uh, I, well, I'm looking, I had these all written down and so- Yeah, so, <laughs> you know, frankly, Jen, PJ, I don't think you had a chance to listen, but when Jen and I did this IG Live, I explained that basically our episode formation is sort of a Venn diagram between what we're interested in, what we know about, people that we could potentially get as guests, and you know what we think people are interested in. So we try to take those three things and you know meld them together to create an episode. So. You know, I'm hoping as we move forward, some of these, like we we keep, I hope we actually do talk about dynamic patterns, uh, dynamic systems, <laughs> dynamic patterns <laughs> theory, uh, because we keep sort of hedging at it. But, you know, there's a concept in dynamic patterns, which is self-organization. So I actually hope through our audience, we start to self-organize some of these episodes as we just get <laughs> feedback. And they sort of point to us like, okay, we should be leaning more in this direction. So um, yeah, we definitely, we want to uh, go back into some of the things we covered this season. We'll figure out, well, we're definitely going to keep the fine print as a concept. Um, I think we're definitely interested in... Um, picking up somewhere where we left off on power, time under tension and hypertrophy and seeing how we can meld that into another discussion, PJ? Yeah, so I think the the overarching topic for this upcoming season is skill. Oh, right. Yeah, so we've, we we've covered a lot of things that are all sort of on the periphery of skill, but we haven't really gotten into skill. We've talked about fitness, we've talked about fitness being a measure of how well we move. We've talked about why we move. We've talked about how we improve our substrates and ability to produce force and accelerate and decelerate and what types of devices we can use and biomechanics. Now it's time to really get into skill and what skill is. And I think it's really an important discussion because people are so focused on quote unquote functional training mm. and just because you're doing something that appears to replicate some movement that doesn't make it functional. And so we, we really want to get into the notion of skill. What is it? How do we define it? How do we measure it? What are the things that contribute to it? And then we'll start to factor in, layer in these different types of episodes, the fine print, we'll get into some more biomechanics. Um, and really with that being the main message for next season. Awesome. I, I think that is going to be uh, and the standard of these episodes. Uh, it keeps getting higher. I mean, you guys are killing it. I'm super excited. <laughs> and we have to keep it going. So we're, we're depending on our audience to ask us some good questions. That's so right. We can take them on. And by the way, don't the, be shy. Don't be shy. Yeah, the power episode came about because we got an Instagram um, request. We said, okay, let's go after it. And so if we get more requests, then we can really dive into some other things of interest for people. 
And by the way, if I may just say one thing real quick, don't, if you know who you are out there, don't send me <laughs> questions that are intended for PJ and ask me to speak for PJ. As, as PJ, this is a phenomenon that happens. People text me and say, hey, what did PJ mean when he said, I say, ask him, we have social media. Ask him <laughs> and someone finally did. And so there are several people that do this and want me to speak on your behalf and I can't. You have... You know, you said what you said on tape, but they want further clarification and they should be directing their questions to our Instagram, which is at Fitness for Consumption. And we will respond, I promise. Yeah. yeah and listen, I've always said my favorite question is the one I can't answer. So come on, stump the panel here. Give me a right. question I can't answer because that's really what I'm looking for. Awesome. Yeah. So. Yeah, listeners, uh, that is our way of saying, reach out, review, tell us what you're thinking, um, tell us what you're working with. Poke um, the bear, poke the bear. Yeah, like the questions are, we value them so much. Um, don't be shy. I um, will continue to do some lives. I think those have been really well received and uh, it gives me a chance to um, be a student, which is my favorite place is, you know, learning and then sharing. So uh, thank you guys for making the time for this episode and thank you guys for listening out there. We will be back soon, and um, I look forward to it. Yep. Thank you, Jen, and thank, thank you, Jen. everybody. Yep. All right. See you guys. Happy Monday. <laughs> <laughs> Bye. Bye. Thank you guys so much for listening. You can find all the shows in the show notes. So head on over to thinkfitbefitpodcast.com or look in the show notes and you will see all of these shows loaded up, ready to listen to on Spotify, but we are on any podcast platform. If you would, please head on over to iTunes, leave a review, let people know how much you are learning from the fitness for consumption gentlemen and how much you are enjoying the think fit be fit conversations we have so much more in store for you and i cannot wait to bring it to you live through all these podcast streams please sign up for the newsletter at thinkfitbefitpodcast.com and the newsletter um, goes out twice a month we also have our instagram page always hanging out on there at thinkfitbefit underscore podcast Fitness for consumption, you can DM them directly. Get uh, Dr. Juris a question that he cannot answer over at Fitness for Consumption, Fitness F O R Consumption. And then Think Fit Be Fit is also on Facebook. And do us a favor send these episodes to your family, your loved ones, your friends, your clients that might not love exercise as much as we do yet you know this is our job is to help people connect deeper to really know what they're doing so that they can fall in love with the process and be lifelong subscribers to the podcast and lifelong subscribers to thinking fit and being fit can't wait to hear from you guys have a great week